If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope you brought your copy, if you would please open them and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, we're looking today at verse 7, following of course the theme of how to live according to Jesus, a series of messages working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, addressing some of the greatest subjects and topics that you and I will ever face in life, Jesus teaching us how to live life. You know, the Bible tells us over in the book of First Peter, chapter 2 and verse 21, that you and I have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So Jesus, that perfect, sinless Son of God who became flesh, human, just like you and I, lived life, came to teach us how also to live life according to his teachings, that he came to give us life and that we might have that life more abundantly. So today we're looking at the subject of mercy. We're looking at the Beatitudes, those first several verses of chapter 5 that records the words of Jesus as he addressed them to the disciples as well as those who had gathered on the side of the mountain to listen to him teach. Matthew chapter 5, let me begin with verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And then this one in verse 7 for today. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The Bible is filled with many scriptures addressing the subject of mercy. The mercy of God, as well as the mercy that you and I, having experienced God's mercy, should have toward one another. One of my favorite verses of scriptures, like yours, is Psalm 23. The verse 6 that the choir just so beautifully sang a moment ago says that at the end of our lives, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I never read that uh, verse 6 that I don't think about a story that is going around today, especially on the internet, about a little kindergarten boy by the name of Timothy who lived, his family lived close to the school where he was going and he enjoyed walking to school. But he got tired of his mother escorting him. And so after complaining, he said, Mom, I want to be like the other big boys. I don't want you following me everywhere I go. So she reluctantly agreed, but she watched as he walked down the sidewalk and suddenly the idea came to her that she noticed her neighbor who lived across the street who had a newborn baby, uh, Mrs. Goodnest, uh, had um, been walking her baby with a stroller down the sidewalk and so she asked her neighbor if she would follow her boy, but at a distance, not where he would turn and notice that she would just ride on uh, his heel, so to speak, and she agreed to do so. She said, well, I need to get out and walk anyway, and that would be just, just right for me. 
So she began following little Timothy to kindergarten school. One day after school, Timothy and his new friend were walking home, kicking rocks and twigs on the sidewalk and so forth. And uh, this little friend of Timothy's turned to him and said, do you see that woman following us? Who is that? Do you know her? And little Timothy said, yes, I know her. Oh, that's Mrs. Goodnest. Said that's, uh, you know, every night my mom makes me say the 23rd Psalm. And uh, that's just Shirley Goodnest and her baby Marcy following us. <laughs> Shirley Goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There are other verses of scripture that address the subject of mercy. Psalm 103 and verse 17. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Psalm chapter three and verse 22. Through the Lord's mercy, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. And then Psalm 37, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way for he is very, very merciful. And one of my favorite, Hebrews chapter four and verse 16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That last expression, to help in time of need, is paraphrased in another verse of scripture or another translation or paraphrase that says that we shall find grace just in the nick of time. So when you're experiencing something that's very difficult and troubling, you wonder where is God and where is his grace. That verse of scripture says, draw near to the throne of grace that you might find mercy and help just in the nick of time. God is never late, he's never early, he's always right on time. And then of course we love the parable of the Good Samaritan. In our Lord's response to the question, who is my neighbor? And he tells about the Good Samaritan who goes down and helps this individual who was beaten and robbed and left in the ditch to die. And he asked the question, of course, who then is my neighbor? And our Lord responded by saying, he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said, go and do thou likewise. The Bible also says in the book of Proverbs, chapter three and verse three, let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck and wear, write them on the tablet of your heart. So wrapping mercy around your neck, ladies, as though it were a necklace, or to write it on the tablet of your heart, to be a person who has experienced the mercy of God and who likewise, in turn, shares the mercy with other people. The title of the message today, You Get What You Give. You get what you give. Matthew 5, 7, God bless those who are merciful for they will be shown mercy. God bless those who are merciful. The late Charles L. Allen, who for many years was the pastor of the First Methodist Church in Houston, one of his first books that he published was called God's Psychiatry. And in that book, he does make reference to the 23rd Psalm. And he says three things about the 23rd Psalm. 
He says, uh, first of all, that it is uh, most, uh, excuse me, not about 23rd Psalm, but about uh, Matthew 5, 7, the Beatitudes. The Psalm 23 is also in that book. But he was also addressing the Beatitudes. And he says of this verse of scripture about God's mercy, that it is appealing, that it is important, and that it is difficult. It is appealing because we... Uh, it brings to mind the, the word of kindness, of unselfish service, of goodwill. And we are reminded of the story of the Good Samaritan and an individual like uh, Florence Nightingale who showed mercy to other people. So it's very appealing, but it's also very important for without mercy, none of us have any hope whatsoever. The first prayer that we should pray is, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But it is also very difficult because this beatitude says, If you want God to be merciful to you, then you must be merciful to other people. Now, what does the word mercy mean? Well, it can be translated in different ways. But my favorite way of translating and knowing that it's translated in this way is this. Mercy means Loving kindness. Loving kindness. You take the word love and you take the word kindness and you put them together. And the mercy of God, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. The greatest demonstration of mercy was when Jesus Christ died on the cross to save us from our sins. It was God's mercy demonstrated for us. God's love demonstrated for us. The kindness of God, putting love and kindness together. God is kind and gracious and loving and compassionate to you and to me. And we are in turn to be the same way toward other people. To be loving and kind in our relationship to all of them. So be merciful, be kind, be gentle. Love in action is what mercy is. In 1 John chapter 3, in verses 17 and 18, the New Living Translation says, If anyone has enough money to live well and see a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let us not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. So anybody can say it. He says, don't just say it. Put your words into action. Put love into action. Love and be loving and kind to other people because that's the way God has been to you and to me. Today's outline, very simple, only two major ideas. First of all, we want to look at the marks of mercy and then the motive for mercy. By marks of mercy, of course, I mean, what are the characteristics? How can we know when we are being merciful? How can we identify mercy in other people? Well, there are at least three or four ways that we can do so. And I've listed them there for you on your outline. The first mark of mercy is to be patient with the peculiar. Be patient with the peculiar. The dictionary defines peculiar as someone who is unusual, someone who doesn't behave normal, to be strange, to be odd. And we are to be merciful to those kinds of individual. Now, there's a verse of scripture from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14. 
In the New Living Translation, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 says, Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy, encourage those who are timid, take tender care of those who are weak, and be patient with everyone. Now, there are three people in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 that Paul identifies. He says, first of all, be patient with those who are lazy. Now, this word lazy is an interesting word. It comes from a word that literally means to be disorderly. And with that word disorderly, it goes back to the military. In the military, a person who is disorderly gets into a lot of trouble. And if he persists in being disorderly, he can even be kicked out of the military. And so to, dis- to be disorderly means you, you don't abide by the rules. Uh, that uh, you don't obey the commands and orders that are given to you. You don't behave as a soldier should behave. Maybe you are AWOL, uh, away without leave. Uh, Maybe you have uh, misconducted yourself in some way, disorderly, in a a way that was unbecoming of a soldier. And so uh, you are disciplined because of that. But then you take that and apply it not just to the soldier, but to the everyday person. That as a Christian, are you being disorderly in the way that you behave? Are you living in a way that is not becoming of a child of God? But people look at you, and as we've often heard it said, sometimes for some people, you're the only Bible they ever see. You're the only Bible they ever read. In other words, they are judging Christianity and they are judging Christ by looking at you and how you behave. If, if you say that you are a Christian and yet you don't behave like a Christian should behave, then it can be a negative influence for the Lord on them. So you, for many people, are the only Bible that we say they ever see or that they ever read. Are you living a life that is disorderly, that is unbecoming of a child of God? One of the ways of doing that in the, in the translation that I've read in the New Living Translation uses the word lazy. Are you lazy as a Christian? You say, well, you know, what's so bad about being lazy? Well, there's a lot of things bad about being lazy, especially for the child of God. I want you to take your Bibles and let me show you what I mean. Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs chapter 24. The Old Testament book of Proverbs chapter 24. And I want to begin reading with verse 30. Proverbs 24 and verse 30. Proverbs 24 and verse 30. I passed by the field of the sluggard. The word sluggard is just another word for the lazy person. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber, and your want like an armed man. And so this is just one of several scriptures in the Bible that warns us of the danger of being lazy. And in this passage of scripture, he describes the field that has been neglected and uh, by the owner. And because it has been neglected, and the reason why it's been neglected, because the man, is, he sleeps late every day. 
He's just a lazy individual. He doesn't want to lift a hand. He, he doesn't even hire anybody to go and look after his field. And consequently, weeds grow up in it. Uh, thorns and nettles and thistles and things that you don't normally want in your field because you're trying to grow crop that you can use and eat. But out of neglect, out of just simply being lazy, this field goes into a deteriorated state. And he's talking about the lazy person who refuses to, to get up every day and, and go to work and, and do what's responsible. There's a New Testament story that supports that. It's found in the 25th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus talks about the end times. And he talks about the master who calls in three servants. He's going away on a trip, and so while he's gone, he wants his property looked after. And so he takes five talents and gives them to one man, two talents to another, and one to a third. When he comes back, he calls the servants in and forces them and demands that they give a report of what they've been doing with the talents that had been entrusted to them. The man to whom he had been given five, he says, I've put them to use, I've doubled them, they're 10, well done. The man who had been given two talents said, I've invested them, I've put them to work, I've doubled them, four, well, well done. But then he comes to the one who's only got one talent. He says, what have you done with your talent? And he says, oh, I know you are a, a man who's very stern and demanding and, and I was afraid and I went and I hid my talent and I have it here intact, but I haven't done anything with it. And the Jesus told the story and he said, well, that man is going to be condemned. He said, the talent that had been entrusted to him is going to be taken away from him. And it's been given to those who were faithful. And this man, he's going to be cast out into outer, outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is a story that Jesus told about responsibility and how we're going to be held accountable for what God has entrusted to us. And if we are lazy and we don't put to use what God has entrusted to us, uh, we're going to be in trouble. And so Paul in the passage of scripture is saying, now he's addressing uh, uh, the book of Timothy to, to Timothy. He's a pastor. He was a pastor at the church at Ephesus. He was responsible for the people who were members of his church. And he says, admonish the people and tell them, don't be lazy. Now do it with patience, but be merciful to them and wake them up. The second kind of person that he addresses is it translated in the passage of scripture as timid. The word timid can also be translated the person who is discouraged. The person who's just despondent. He, he, he just... He just kind of gives up and he's, he's not inspired. And he says, well, you, you need to encourage that person. You need to lift them up. You need to, to be a cheerleader for them and, and encourage them to, to, to do what the Lord has entrusted to them and what the Lord expects of them. Be patient when you do it, but be kind and loving and gentle to them, but also remind them, hey, you are a person of great worth and of great value. And, and, and you need to, to take care how you conduct yourself and be a person of great encouragement. And then the third person that he talks about is the weak person, the weak person. Now in supporting the weak person, he's not talking about the person who's physically weak, who's a wimp. He, he's not talking about the person who's weak because he is sick. He's talking about the individual who's just, he's just not strong in the Lord. He just hasn't matured in his faith. And so spiritually, he's not a very strong person. He's very weak. And what you need to do, uh, Timothy, as a pastor is to support these individuals and encourage them and, and feed them and help them to be stronger spiritually. 
Be kind and be merciful to them. Be patient with them. Did you know, and let me remind you if you have forgotten, that in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, one of the descriptive terms of love is be patient. Love is patient. Love is kind. So loving kindness, being patient with those who are weak in their faith, who are not strong in what they believe, who, who yield to temptation so easily, don't jump to conclusions and don't judge them so quickly. Be kind and gentle and patient with them. That's what real love is all about. And love and patience, why? Of course, that, that's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. How do you know if you're kind and gentle? And it, it's produced in your life by the Holy Spirit. So be patient with the peculiar. Secondly, be forgiving of those who have fallen. Oh, there are all of us at times slip up and do things that we shouldn't do and we fall into sin and yield to temptation. But in Colossians 3.13, the New Living Translation, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive everyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Now there are two stories in the Bible that illustrate how we ought to be forgiving and showing mercy to other people. Both of these men named Joseph. In the Old Testament, it's Joseph, one of the favorite, if the, not the favorite son. You remember how Joseph flaunted his favoritism that the father was showing him to his brothers? His brothers became angry with him. They wanted to kill him. They threw him down in a pit. They wanted to kill him, but one of them said, hey, here comes a caravan. Let's sell him into slavery. So they took him up out of the pit. Didn't think he could ever get any worse than what he was already in. But now here he is being sold, your own flesh and blood, selling him into slavery. And he ends up down into Egypt. And he ends up in prison because as a slave, he's accused falsely by uh, Potiphar's uh, wife that he tried to seduce her. And he was innocent, but nobody stood up for him. And so now he's in a dungeon, he's in prison. But eventually by God's mercy and grace and favoritism, pulled him up out of that dungeon, set him in a position that was second in power only to the Pharaoh himself. And then, of course, the day comes, as you're acquainted with the story, when you come to the 50th chapter of the book of Genesis. By this time, the father has died. They know that this person that they're standing before is their brother Joseph, but they're afraid, oh, how past sins catch up with us. And they're afraid that now the father is dead, Joseph is going to take revenge on them for what they had done to him. But instead, Joseph's attitude was, what you did to me, you intended it for evil, but God took it and worked it out for good. A demonstration of kindness and of love and of forgiveness and of mercy. In the New Testament, there's the story of another man by the name of Joseph. He was the husband-to-be of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the Bible says in Matthew verse 19, chapter 1 and verse 19, the news comes, Joseph was engaged to, uh, to Mary. In those days, to be engaged was, was the equivalent of being married, only you had not consummated physically the relationship but they were legally married to one another and word comes to Joseph that Mary is pregnant. And so the ultimate only idea that he has is that runs through his mind, it was she's been unfaithful to me. Uh, she, she has had a relationship with somebody else and that's somebody else's baby. The law said I could have her 
stoned to death. The law says I could divorce her. And notice what her attitude is, his attitude is in verse 19 of Matthew 1. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly before he was ever instructed by the Lord that he was to go ahead and follow through with the marriage relationship because that which was in Mary was conceived of the Holy Spirit. His attitude was, I love her. I don't want any harm to come to her. I don't want to disgrace her. I don't want to degrade her or disgrace her or embarrass her or make her shameful in the eyes of other people. I'm just going to do, I'm a righteous man. I love her. But I'm just going to quietly put her away. Just, just divorce her and let her go on her way and I'll go on my way. And then the Lord says, hey, go ahead and follow through with that. That which is in her is of the Holy Spirit. Showing then a demonstration of love and forgiveness. Be patient with the peculiar. Be forgiving of those who have fallen. And be helpful to those who are hurting. In Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 27, the good news paraphrase says, Whenever you possibly can, do good to those who need it. Whenever you possibly can, do good to those who need it. Now take your Bibles. Hopefully you're still in the Gospel of Matthew. But in Matthew chapter 25, in Matthew chapter 25, <clears throat> verses 31 through 46, Jesus tells another parable about the end times. And uh, he talks about uh, ministering and helping other people. And if you'll notice, uh, he, he tells uh, uh, that Jesus spells out six actions of kindness. Look at Matthew 25. Verse 35, he says, feeding the hungry. He says, you fed the hungry. Well, that's an act of mercy to take somebody who's hungry and, and feeding them. In verse 35, he also talks about giving someone who's thirsty something to drink. And then also in verse 35, he, he talks about showing hospitality to the stranger. In those days, they didn't have hotels and motels like we do today. And it was very customary, hospitable of an individual who had come into town that if you had the means to do so and the capability of doing so, you invite them into your home. You let them spend the night with you and you feed them and you take care of them. And then in verse 36, he talks about clothing the naked. I was naked and you clothed me. Also in verse 36, he talks about visiting the sick and visiting the ones who are in prison. And, and, he, and they said, well, when did we ever see you like this, Lord? And he said, well, inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. So Jesus is saying to us, be helpful to those who are hurting. John Wesley's motto was this, do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can in all the places you can in all the times you can for all the people you can for as long as ever you can. Be helpful and kind and loving to other people who are in need. Be merciful to them. And then a fourth way, he says to be merciful, is to do good to your enemies. Do good to your enemies. Luke chapter 6, verse 35 and 36. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great. And will truly be acting as the children of the Lord, the Most High. For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate, just as your Father in heaven is compassionate. 
So love your enemies. Our, our attitude is, well, I, I hate my enemies. I'm going to stay away from my enemies. I don't have anything to do with my enemies. Jesus said, love them. Jesus said, be good to them. Be kind to them. Be forgiving in all that you had. Someone has said, you won't get dizzy from doing good turns. So do a good turn for somebody. These are the marks of a person who is merciful. Then let's go to the second idea, and that is the motive for mercy. There are at least three, three motives of why I should be merciful to other people is because God has shown mercy to me. God has shown mercy to me. In Psalm 103, verses 10 and 11 from the New Living Translation, he does not punish us for all of our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens is above the earth. So God doesn't treat us in a way that we deserve. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve forgiveness. We deserve damnation. We deserve to be eternally separated from God in a place called hell. But on the cross of Calvary, God demonstrated his love for us. God showed us mercy. Be merciful to me, O God, for I am a sinner. And so God has shown us mercy. That should motivate us to be merciful as well. Augustine said, God leads us to eternal life, not by our merits, but according to his mercy. So God saves us by his mercy, by grace through his mercy. So God has shown mercy to us. Secondly, God, I, I will always need mercy, always. I will always need mercy. James 2, 3, 13 says, there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. For if you have not been merciful, God will be, not be merciful when he judges you. So I need to show mercy to other people because I always, I, I, I'm always in need of mercy. Every day of my life, I need God's, I don't want justice. If I get justice, I'm going to be damned to hell. I, I want mercy. I want God to be merciful to me. I always need it. Every day I wake up, I need God's mercy. Alexander Pope said, teach me to feel another's woe, to hide the fault I see. That mercy I do show others, that mercy show to me. So be merciful to others. So God has shown mercy to me. I'm always in need of mercy. The third thing is it makes me happy. Oh, blessed are the merciful. Oh, happy are those who are merciful. Proverbs eleven seventeen says, your kindness will reward you, but your cruelty will destroy you. Do you know if you are a person who's hateful and mean and vindictive and rude and cruel to other people that it's going to affect you physically in your health? It will affect every fiber of your being physically. A lot of your sicknesses. A lot of the things that you uh, are ill about and, and, and physically sick about comes from the attitude that you have toward yourself and toward other people. Your kindness will reward you, but your cruelty will destroy you. So in conclusion, let me share with you how to become merciful. How to become merciful. Well, experience God's mercy yourself, first of all. You can't be merciful to somebody else in, in the way that God wants you to be if you've never been merciful. God, God hasn't been merciful to you. 
So make sure that you have experienced the mercy of God. In other words, have you been saved? Have you repented of your sins? Have you embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you experienced the baptism of mercy that God gives to you? God loves you. He cares for you. He died for you in, his, in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He's been merciful to you. So I hope and pray that you have experienced the mercy of God. Secondly, look at others through the eyes of Jesus. Look at others through the eyes of Jesus. Look at that individual as Jesus did. Jesus didn't go around condemning. Jesus said, I didn't come into this world to condemn people. I came into this world to give life and let it be more abundantly. And Jesus forgave. On the cross, what was his first words recorded in Holy Scripture? As Jesus hung on the cross, becoming sin for you and for me. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they have done or what they are doing. And so look at other people through the eyes of Jesus and be merciful to them. And then the third thing is to ask yourself this question. Who in my life? needs to be shown mercy. Surely there's somebody that you know, somebody that you work with, somebody that you live next door to, somebody that you go to school with, somebody that you socialize with that needs to experience mercy and to be shown mercy by you. I want to conclude with another illustration from the Bible that talks about the mercy of God. So take your Bibles and turn to the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And uh, I'll begin reading with verse 21. Matthew chapter 18, beginning with verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So what is Jesus uh, saying here that uh, I can forgive and must forgive somebody who, who offends me 470 times, but boy, if he does it the 471st time, I, I can double up my fist and let him have it? No, that's not what he means. The number seven is the perfect number in scriptures. And so he's multiplying it. What he's saying is that you should not put a limit on how often you should forgive your brother. If he comes to you and is sincere and asks for forgiveness, you're, you're obligated to forgive him. You should not put a limit on how many times you should forgive your brother who offends you. That's what he's saying. Verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground that prostrated himself and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion, mercy, released him, forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and, and he found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a denarii was the equivalent of one day's wage. And so he owed him a hundred days' wages. 
of what he would earn in 100 days. I guess to compare just modern terminology, the first time this guy probably owed the king $10 million. Now he comes out and he finds this fella to whom he had loaned $2,000. And he, instead of being patient with this guy who owes him $2,000, like the king dismissed the $10 million debt that he had, he grabs him by the collar and he says, pay me, pay me. And so he says in verse 25, he owed him a hundred denarii. He seized him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling. And he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was sold. So when his fellow slave saw what had happened, uh, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Now, let me stop here. You know, a, a question has often come into my mind when, when I read verses 29 and 23 where this guy begs the man to be patient with him and he'll repay him. And he says, no, I'm going to have you thrown into prison and, 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 and you're going to stay there until you pay me every cent that you owe me. Well, if you take a person and put them in prison, if they don't have the money to begin with, how are they going to work to earn any money to ever pay the debt back? It's going to be impossible. And so what he's saying here is that you're, you're saying this man, you're taking away every avenue that he has to ever be able to pay you back. If you die without being forgiven of your sins, you're going to spend eternity. There'll never be a way for you to pay back the debt that you owe. That's why you need Jesus. He's paid you. He's paid the father the debt that you owe. And so now this guy's in prison. And the other slaves who hear this go and tell the king what has happened. So in verse 32, then summoned him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I have mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And so he just put him in jail, be tormented by the torturers. He'll never, he'll be that way forever as long as he lives. And so he said, you should do the same thing. I forgave you that tremendous $10 million debt and you couldn't forgive a guy who owed you $2,000. You get what you give. You sow and reap what you sow. And uh, the greatest and final thing comes from the forgiveness of your sin. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Just listen to this. Titus 3 verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying, there is nothing you can do to earn forgiveness. It is not of works there are not of enough works, not enough things that you can do to earn your salvation, to earn the forgiveness of God. It is all of grace. It is all of mercy. By his mercy, it is through his mercy that you and I are forgiven.
Blessed are those who are merciful to other people, for they shall be merciful. Let's bow together. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll take the holy infallible word of the Lord Jesus and make it real to us. Words are cheap, but actions are so deep and meaningful. And we know that although you have said, and we have no reason to doubt you, you speak the truth, there's no lie in you. The Bible says you cannot lie. And so when the Bible says, and you say to us that you love us, and that you desire to be merciful to us, you took those words and demonstrated them through the living word of the Lord Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. And we realize that there's not enough righteous things, good things that we can do. As you have said, if we were together, all of the good things and the righteous things that we've done and gathered them around us in your sight, they are as filthy rags. So we have no choice. We cannot pull ourselves up. We are helpless and sinful and weak. But you are strong. And we thank you for your love. You've told us to be patient with other people. And we realize how patient you are with us. Thank you, Lord, for caring for us, for loving us, for being patient with us, for being merciful to us. And having experienced your mercy, oh, how blessed we are. May we, in turn, show mercy to others. Bless now this time of invitation. Holy Spirit, do your work. And may we yield to the, your, follow, your leadership and to follow your will is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? And if God is speaking to you, come.